to the Making Laps Podcast. Welcome to our nightmare, Nick. Welcome yes. to my nightmare. Are you rolling? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Actually, what I said was, how would you like to suck my balls? Yes, Apparently you've been recording for the last three and a half minutes. Oh, yes. that sounds good. That'll be fun All to right. edit. All right, everybody got their, uh, 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 Cour- what is it? Courage in a can? <laughs> it's the uh, funny juice. Oh, Please, Jesse's funny mama. juice. I do. Mm. All right. Let's do this. Okay. Hello and welcome back to the Making Laps podcast. I am your host, Brent Gleason. Along with me in the studio is my brother, Jesse Gleason. Hello, everyone. So On the line is Phil tired. Jakes from Florida yet again. There it is. <laughs> Sorry, took I was me waiting look. for it. <laughs> I got 24 tabs on there. So. It never gets old. I don't know why. It's a really good song. It's not a good song. It's terrible. For some reason, it always comes on when I'm riding down the road. That's because your phone is listening to every conversation you have because they want to target advertising to you. And they're like, oh, this song he seems to like because we hear it all the time. I hate that song. I absolutely... (laughs) We still got somebody to introduce here. Anyway. We actually have a special guest with us today. I've been promising for a long time that I've been going to get him on the show. It's Mr. Yankee Racer himself, Nick Tito. Nick, thank you for joining us on yep. this absolute yeah, horror fest. Well, glad to be here. Like you said, we've been discussing this for uh, some time on and off, so glad that it's finally uh, possible to happen. Yeah, I've, I, it's not that I've really – it's just it's all my fault. Every single time, it's my fault. <laughs> I Everything's your fault all I the can't, time. No, anything that pertains to the show with scheduling or anything, if I forget something, my fault. If I, I screw was, up the edit, it's my fault. <laughs> I thought it was Trump's fault for, for COVID, but that's why we haven't had him on. No, I mean, we, <laughs> you know? again, that's scheduling, and that's my fault as well. So I keep, I keep screwing up These getting are, him on as well. It's the new normal, and it's tough to get a hold of him. Fair enough. <laughs> so it's... It's getting towards the end of the season. I mean, local racing around here finished up this past weekend, I assume. I mean, we had one race at the Speed Bowl. But, um, yeah, obviously I don't have a personal update other than I'm probably going to be going back to Thompson full-time next year. I know they're only going to have eight or six races. And uh, I've heard a lot of good things about the staff and – I think that's about it, but I think we should actually turn the tables here and focus on our guest, Nick. You are the what is it? President, CEO, uh, owner, founder, founder of YankeeRacer.com. What do you guys do? Just give us a broad overview of what you guys do there. Well, you gave me a lot of titles, and I feel like I fill about ninety percent of the any title you could give me. <laughs> well, I make um, sure I cover well, all bases. This is true. Um, well, the site started out just as uh, myself and Jay Yackley starting the site back in 2002. And it was just kind of a basic thing of, okay, let's try and build this website up and uh, just see what tracks we can go and promote their uh, local results. And that gradually grew to myself having a really um, passion for lack of a better term with videography and that's developed into the point where 
I'm at most virtually every weekend just at racetracks, traveling all over, shooting video, editing the videos. And um, to a lesser degree, I do photography. And then I've always kind of had a passion for uh, history as a part of my background. So I try and um, do research on statistics and old drivers and all kinds of things that uh, locating where the tracks were. I mean, all kinds of things that the average person probably doesn't care about in, mo in motorsports, but I happen to just have a, a knack or an interest in it. So I try and be as comprehensive as I can for uh, if there's a place to find some information in racing or a different track I can cover, I'll, I'll travel three hours to do it. So it's just love of the game, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term. Yeah, well, you you certainly picked the right side of the hobby instead of spending money on race cars, like us, <laughs> like us idiots. <laughs> well, photography's not cheap either. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, yeah, I know. But I uh, I'm so used to doing videography and photography for DiMaggio and Sid's View and Vault Productions, and we don't really buy that equipment. He does. So yeah. <laughs> I'm just like no, Yankee and, show and go on and, our side. Yeah, Yankee Racer is a uh, very high and and well respected. Uh, media outlet as far as i'm concerned as well yeah for the local so. stuff definitely um yeah i mean if there's one thing that's really almost a th well i don't want to call it a thankless job because people do appreciate it it's that you you go and you film all these races and you post them on youtube later on so that people mm -hmm. can you know it's basically kept for posterity's sake but it's also so that people can catch reviews and all this other stuff but i know you do a lot more than that but Again, I, I just hope that you actually get a little bit of uh, thanks from people every time <laughs> you get out oh, there and uh, get to... Yeah, there's no shortage of that. That's something that was uh, certainly appreciated by people this year. Um, you know, Jason Palmer's won a ton of races in his career at uh, New London Waterford Speed Bowl and just talking to him after the race and immediately goes to thank me for everything I did uh, in one season there. Um, hmm. Or Mike Marfio is the general manager up there and there's been plenty of times they wanted to review my video. Um, and no matter what angle somebody's finding a use for my efforts. And I think that's something that it goes a long way. You know, it's like anything else, you know, you work so hard on your race cars and, and that doesn't necessarily translate into the results you were looking for in a given week. But when it all goes right and you win the race, it's, it's like a different high. And I think with racing, it's the videography angle is different because you're trying to look at, okay, how's this race unfolding? Um, what really should be the things I'm trying to focus on? Do I kind of go through the field? Do I try and anticipate um, a caution coming up in a couple of laps the way these cars are battling? Just these little things that go in your head is kind of a technique. And um, ultimately, you try and do the best job you can in, in anticipating what's going to happen and uh, make sure you capture the big moments, whether it be a lead change or, or some kind of daring maneuver. And uh, ultimately, you're right. Long term, that's you want to have that archive of stuff. Uh, you really don't know what the uh, significance of it is. It might be someone's only career win, could be a, a long career they've had. It might be their last one. You really don't know where that video truly might be valuable down the road. And if, if you're not there to capture it, it's, you know, limited to social media or a newspaper. It's the ways to preserve this stuff is getting really more difficult to keep uh, the way it was taken for granted years ago. So the video is really a nice way to make sure people have a uh, access to it on demand. Like you said, a lot of times uh, you're, you're the only camera angle there at the racetrack and it's very hard to, to get everything. And, uh, but more often than not, 
you do get everything. Um, uh, is uh, what would you like? Maybe elaborate on what you're looking for, maybe, and uh, like uh, yeah. on on the track and, and and seeing how you capture those moments uh, and and everything. Well, I I look at um, your um, kind words there as the product of a lot of mistakes and coulda shoulda wouldas and races that I didn't do things right in, in years past and figuring out how to refine what you do or how to do a better job. No different if you have a GoPro in your car or you have somebody um, talking about, you know, the way you, you, you get on the brakes, you're a little too soon, or your, your apex in the corner is wrong. All these little things that once it clicks, it took a lot of practice to figure out mm-hmm. how to get better. But once you learn that, you try to not make that mistake again. Um, you know, I try to look at where the action is. It's probably my, my main compass on this. So if I have uh, a field that gets really spread out is something I've noticed in racing. So I try and look at, okay, uh, the leaders typically got a decent lead and I try not to feature them. Um, so I'll look at, okay, can I start to go through the field? Maybe second, third, sixth place. Maybe I didn't put that car in the video otherwise. So let me just kind of do a lap following each car. If it's a long race where we have a green flag run, um, you'll have somebody that catches um, a slower car. And this tends to be something that I think people maybe don't notice, but um, that battle to me is either the desire to pass the car that you just caught. So you're going to maybe step up how hard you drive the car, which is potentially going to mean there's a crash that's your next yellow. Or ideally, it's a good battle that they go side by side for laps and don't touch. But at the end of the day, that's probably better than just following a given car because they were the leader or you were just happening to follow a car. So just kind of be dynamic and flexible with what's going on in the race. Don't kind of set your heart on one particular car or any uh, specific like preconceived notion. I just kind of go with the flow, what goes on. I think that's really the best way to, to capture what you're talking about so you don't miss on the action when it does happen. Yeah, see, Jesse and I were both involved in racing from a crew or driving or ownership side before we even got into the videography prog- process uh, with racing, uh, with like vault productions and such. But so we've uh, we've always had that bank of knowledge to just kind of lean on uh, when it comes to capturing footage. But it, I assume that you'd probably have a uh, or have to at least acquire your uh skill for finding action and, and pointing it out kind of organically i agree 100 percent. i think it's one of those things that uh, in the limited time i tried announcing um i thought that was going to be the easiest thing um because you're just you have the best seat in the house you're above the, the racetrack and you get to call the action and uh the first time i tried it they said you need to go practice uh, speaking louder and try yelling or something because we had the maximum volume and we couldn't hear you. <laughs> so you yeah. have to project your voice. <laughs> um, so just these little lessons that you that you have. And I kind of joke I had the shortest stint in announcing it like half a season before I decided I just didn't want to do it. And it's one of those things where I, I was very knowledgeable about it. But at the same time, you kind of realize some things weren't really a good fit. Um, I did have the honor to the one time to talk with uh, – Ned Jarrett, and, and I found it interesting for everything he accomplished in his career. He felt the announcing was more difficult than the driving, and I kind of would have assumed it would have been the other way around. 
I find driving to be a lot easier than talking. Like <sighs> when I'm when I'm sitting here, I can't think of a word to save my life. But if I'm on the racetrack, I'm just like gas go down, turn left. It's <laughs> how, easy. <laughs> how did how did you meet Ned Jarrett? Um, by the way, um, well, actually, I didn't I didn't meet him. Uh, it was uh, just kind of a shot in the dark. Um, back to my history uh, degree, and so I have always kind of have an interest in um, trying to figure out things to the past and new lessons I can learn or just something that's been overlooked or forgotten about. Um, I lived 10 minutes from the site of the first oval track auto race ever held in the United States in Cranston, Rhode Island at the state fairgrounds in 1896. And uh, so I always kind of feel like I'm, I'm close to home aware this whole oval track racing obsession of mine got going. Um, but actually Norwood, Massachusetts had a track in the 1940s until the 1972 season called Norwood Arena. Yes, sir. And uh, between Thompson dropping the NASCAR Grand Nationals in 1951 and I believe New Hampshire Motor Speedway um, coming in in the modern era, Thompson did have, uh, I think, two races in the, I think it was 71 and 69, I want to say, or 70, something in that range. And uh, the only track in between that stint was Norwood Arena. So actually they hauled the cars up. Uh, for the Cup Series for a 500-lap race at Norwood Arena in 1961. And uh, Emmanuel Zervikis was the only driver. Uh, I think him and maybe one of the car run the lead lap at the end of this race. And it was one of his two only Cup wins. Hmm. And uh, the other, I think there was like a you know 12 or 15-car field. It wasn't even like it was a big field of cars that came up to run that race. But uh, he passed on. And uh, two of the people that ran in that race were Rex White, who is still alive at about 90 years old now. And he... Uh, is another NASCAR Hall of Famer and went on to win the championship uh, in 1960. Mm -hmm. But the other driver that was in that race, and I believe he finished third, was Ned Jarrett. So I had this idea of, wow, this is kind of something I, I shouldn't take for granted, that uh, they had this somewhat obscure New England appearance by the NASCAR Cup cars in their only event ever held in the Bay State. And I have a chance to talk to somebody who was actually at this event. So uh, I had called up the NASCAR Hall of Fame and uh, just kind of figured as a shot in the dark, maybe they'd know how to reach some of these uh, retired drivers. And um, to make a long story short, I got a call. I was driving around uh, in, in, you know, in the area here one day. And I'm like, I don't recognize that number, but let's, uh, let's answer it. And uh, sure enough, it was Ned Jarrett. And he couldn't have been more uh, professional. And it was neat that uh, we get to talk about this race, how they would just haul the car up on like a trailer and, um, ran this 500 mile race, you'd have time trials and just go and, uh, you actually had traded tires on it cause it was just street tires and you would run this long distance event. And so it's sort of like the formula one cars used to be where you had traded tires on them and the longer you ran, it actually, uh, wore the tread away. So it became like a slick tire. So the car has actually ran better, the more worn out the tires got. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as you occasionally see, there's actually a, uh, scoring disputes once in a while you do see that um if there's like a photo finish these days with the transponder disputes but back then they didn't have electronic scoring so they would hand score the races hmm. and there was actually a dispute on who won the race because it, i can imagine trying to score a race for um some not necessarily well-lit track uh all these years ago might not have been that easy of a task i don't understand so hand scoring races anyway that's just magic to me <laughs> yeah it does feel that way doesn't it we just kind of assume this works well and we 
can't fathom any of us actually being successful to uh, try and score all these cars going around. Yeah, I was actually waiting for a Frank Durier reference there. I was like, oh, man, 1896 <laughs> going on. Yeah. Jesus. Now, was that a project yeah. uh, for the Norwood uh, racetrack, or is there um, a... No, it really wasn't anything specific. I just kind of sometimes have these, like, broad items, and I'll try and figure out something of interest. Like, R.A. Sylvia has been such a huge help with preserving New England motorsports history, and he has, like, a poster from that race or any number of trophies, and just these little things that, um, I just look at, um, a certain thing he might have in his collection or something I'll run across and, and I have these sort of, uh, I don't know, thoughts for lack of a better term to say, you know, if this person's still around or they might have some firsthand knowledge of it, um, I'm still relatively young, so I don't want to just have it where, um, I see myself as potentially the last connection to a lot of these historic figures where I potentially have a long life ahead of me where I'm going to be the old person someday telling people how things used to be, or even before I was around. So it's, it's, it's a part of my job to go back and uh, get as much information as I can, because I can always go back and read a program or a magazine, but, but their memories are something that you don't want to have die with them if you can help it. Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of there's a lot of importance in history, and to document it is incredibly important. And if you can tell all the interesting stories of the past, and you can tell them to people who are interested in it, then you can spread the word, and you can actually gain more interest in it. And then you'll have more people around to document the past. So and, luckily, you can actually pass this type of thing on. And, and this thing, and those cars were all like really, really handmade. No one really could go out and just buy equipment and everything. And you could see the innovation through along the years and. R.A. Sylvia's Pro Nine and Pro Nine Museum. There, it's a absolute treasure chest. If oh, you ever yeah. can go see that in Rhode Island, it's amazing. Especially the local stuff, definitely. Yeah, that's uh, that's been you know firsthand. That's been a huge part of making any of my projects possible. Without their collection, it's usually a non-starter. I think Phil is uh, pooping or something because he's been on mute the whole time. Oh, he's back. I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm here. I'm just making sure there's no background noise. Uh, no, I just wanted to, you know, make uh, no, you know what? Forget it. We're good. No, he turned himself off again. This is fun. I like doing this. So, Nick, <laughs> have you ever thought about like uh, another, like doing a full length uh, documentary around this uh, Northeast? Um, I've had some some considerations on it. I, I think kind of the problem with any of these projects I, I probably stop myself with is uh, New England motorsports is such a broad term. I mean, there's been so many racetracks that have come and gone. Um, <laughs> even in my little state of Rhode Island, it, it kind of would just be, you know, what do I, um, what's really available for information or pictures and, and how do I make this as some kind of a comprehensive, meaningful story? Um, yeah, what kind of it's focus? Just, yeah, that's kind of the only question I would have. Like, I feel like I really wouldn't do a good job in trying to organize this. It, it would maybe be something like more of a documentary style. So I've I've thought about doing that for certain tracks, just as a starting point, where I had more resources available, and just do like a narration, and you have the pictures to talk about, and maybe go back to the location on site if there's anything left of it. So there's certainly potential. Um, I just maybe haven't given that much serious um, effort into actually, you know, outlining it or 
trying to come up with what the theme of it would be. But it, it's definitely a good idea because there's a lot of these tracks that, um, you know, didn't run that long. So it's, it's even more important in those cases where they're more obscure or uh, the site's been uh, torn down that you want to have some people uh, recall it beyond some little memorial marker where it used to be. So it's, it's definitely an idea I would, I would entertain if other people had interest and wanted to collaborate on it. Yeah, isn't no. the Norwood Arena like a shopping center now? Yeah, yeah, it's an industrial park um, these days. I mean, it's part of Route 1, so there's a ton of car dealerships up there. And obviously, like a lot of these tracks, when you built them in the uh, post-war boom or, or earlier than that, they were uh, not necessarily very populated or uh, areas. And then gradually, as suburban sprawl happened or the area became more populated, the property became more valuable than what was already there. And, and even if we love our hobby of racing, you have to face the fact that it's a seasonal business that usually operates only six months out of the year and the property taxes that can be gained or the jobs or whatever angle they want to look at. Usually the racetrack's not going to be able to be as profitable for the, uh, for the town. And so usually these tracks uh, don't have an ability to keep going. And that's really unfortunate, even in the case of like Myrtle beach speedway, that track had been there for so many years and we've, uh, some of these tracks we're just familiar with at a national level and uh, they just aren't now, uh, now gone. So it's, it's certainly difficult, but uh, um, you know, just trying, that's kind of the reminder in racing, you know, you can't really take it for granted and try to get to any new tracks that you can and um, try and keep the sport going. That's, that's probably the biggest thing. I think a lot of these tracks are uh, this year was difficult for them. And uh, let's, Hopefully, we can continue to support them next year so we can keep them going. Nick, one question I have is you mentioned the the vast amount of tracks that have come and gone over the years. Mm -hmm. um, everybody knows we only have one left in Massachusetts. There's three <clears throat> in Connecticut. Do you have a list compiled with either locations or geotags or anything? Yeah. All the tracks? Uh. To a degree. Um, I had a project years ago where I would just use Google Maps and I would basically use it to map out by color uh, where the track was down to the GPS coordinates and just activate whether it was open or closed or if I was, you know, still trying to find it, that kind of thing. And uh, I stumbled on a gentleman out of Pennsylvania, William White, and he is uh, part of the Track Chasers group. So they organize trying to look at all the different racetracks you can go to in the course of your life, essentially. And, and that's kind of its own, its own hobby. Um, but he has a website called autoracingrecords.com. And so what he does is uh, he essentially overlapped a lot of the work I was already doing just through the map or putting in an Excel spreadsheet. And so you can go on his website and you can look up tracks that are recently active or, or like all time historic tracks by country, by state. And, uh, myself, Kyle Rizik, um, couple of the people that are part of the track chasers group there's about 7,000 tracks worldwide roughly and the goal we've been working on um most more so kyle lately than myself but the goal would be to have the gps coordinates listed with every single track on that website long term and so you could be able to look at where the track was in google or historic aerials.com and so there's all these little ways they're not quite really refined enough to where you'd say i'm happy with it but that, that's kind of been the big project um, 
I'd say for the winter would just be to try and see if there's a way we can get most of that completed because um, sometimes you end up finding tracks that you didn't even know existed <laughs> even when you mm-hmm. think you've uh, right. got a good handle on it. So I think that's kind of the good thing sometimes that you're preserving tracks that uh, this year closed down, you know where they were before they were turned into something else or you never know what other doors may open just by having an interest in that aspect of the sport. So it's, um, it's, you know, certainly a niche. I, I know not everybody's going to have an interest in that, but it's also good to be able to get a scale of a sense of the scale of how many racetracks there used to be in the United States or in new England, because I think most people, uh, you bring up Norwood or Danbury or, or some of these tracks that have been gone, they've been gone 40 or 50 years or more now. So that, unfortunately with the passage of time, some of these racetracks, it's going to be, uh, um, you know, the people that remember going there, you, you're not necessarily going to have those people to talk to. So it's it's important to try and preserve, as you said, uh, what you can to pass down for future generations. Hmm. So now, do you good? Do you know if there are any ghost tracks that still exist? Any any remnants of uh, tracks of the past in our um, area? Yeah, that's a good question. Usually the problem with the redevelopment here is when they take over the property, they usually just destroy it and put in some other kind of building or parking. And there's really not any sense of where the racetrack ever was there. Um, Let's see. There's a track. I think Connecticut Dragway, I think, is still. Yes, yes. That's probably the best example, actually, is that's essentially still there without any of the timing equipment or anything like that. Yeah, but it's, it's still uh, there. For there's an old speaker testing. like right around, like right on the edge of Route 16, which almost like adds as like a marker in my thing. It's like an it's, old light or an old speaker or something right there. It's actually still in use. It's yeah, the it's Consumer just, Reports test track. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, other than that, uh, what, do you have any other like ghost tracks? Yeah. I, I don't know of any um, others. Yeah, there's only a couple I could really think of. I think there was a go-karting track or quarter major track up in New London that's like this, basically buried in the woods. There, um, uh, is it? Is that Cartway? No, I don't think it's Cartway. Was I'd have to go back and check. Track. I don't it remember a, what it was. Cartway was a rental track off Route 12. That's probably not it. I parked, so. there, yesterday, <laughs> yeah, I parked there yesterday with the UPS truck. Oh, okay. I don't even know if that place um, is still. That, that place is a, really good for giving you tetanus. So it's it's alive. <laughs> uh, the only what other about one I can, Whip City. Ooh, I'm not sure. I, I saw a good chunk of that, like it's a good one, leveled from, and that was what maybe ten years ago now. Um, yeah, I, I I remember when uh, Westboro got leveled. I was a little kid when that one got taken down. There's a Lowe's there now. Um, I haven't seen. I went to Whip City one time, and I never got to see it beyond that. Mm-hmm. I know they. They still have a BMX club out there, but I don't. I didn't know about the oval track if it was still there. If it got leveled yet, I think most yeah, of the oval track is still there. Maybe the out surrounding areas is yeah. is kind of taken down. But like that, I think the outer fencing got taken down. But the track, I'm pretty sure, is still there. Yeah, it's still there. You look at it; it looks like the track is like really, you know, out of in disrepair. But you know, just past the road and the trees, it's. It's still there with the same oval layout. Like you can still walk around it. It looks like. Yeah, they they stopped uh, running races there because they said something about airport expansion, and then they never did anything about airport expansion. So, I don't know what they were doing. Whatever. Yeah, that's not the first time we've seen that happen, where yeah. uh, the track gets shut down for some reason, which may be legitimate, but then their 
plan never goes through, but they never allow the racetrack to reopen. So I think I'm going to move the conversation towards um, my prepared notes discussion points because I, this is one of the reasons <laughs> why I brought uh, Nick on is that I wanted his perspective on this type of deal. Now, I'm going to transfer the uh, conversation over to Thompson Speedway. Now, we all know that they've got new ownership. Or not new ownership, I wish, but <laughs> they have new um, people running the oval track races who are leasing the track. It's uh, the Michaud and Mayberry, and I think the last few episodes I said something about Tom Curley, but I don't think he's even still alive, so that was just kind of a slip of the tongue. But, um, mm. yeah, it's uh, Chris, I think it's Chris Michaud and Tom Mayberry. Is that the two from Acton Pass? Yes. Okay. Um, so at least I got their names right this time. But they announced that they're going to be racing six races in 2021 at Thompson Speedway. Uh, and they're going to have, I believe, if I'm reading their schedule or their uh, press release correctly, that they're going to have open tour-type modified events at all six shows. Now, I'm not sure if that's the case or not, but that's what I read, and I'm not very good at reading. Comprehension. Yeah, both. Um mm. But from what from what I'm seeing is that they're expected to be running, I think Icebreaker and World Series are going to be weekend shows like normal, and I believe the other regular events, the four that are going to fill out the rest of the schedule, are going to be on Wednesday nights. Um, they're also bringing back the Thompson 300. It's twenty thousand dollars to win. That's, that's open dirt, modified race. That's so. dirt track purses right there. Yeah, just not dirt track laps. So. <laughs> Now, what I'm reading between the lines is that I'm not expecting a return of the NASCAR sanctioning to Thompson Speedway. And from what I've also heard is that New Smyrna down in Florida, and this is just purely rumor at this point, I think I got it from Phil, um, (laughs) but (laughs) that New Smyrna is not going to be covering or uh, carrying a NASCAR sanction either. I'm not too sure, though. Now, my big question is, is short track racing starting to turn away from NASCAR? Uh, obviously, with it appearing that Thompson's going to be dropping it and New Smyrna, et cetera, et cetera, moving down the list. What's like? What is the actual benefit of a NASCAR sanctioning nowadays? Because I know back in say eighties, nineties, et cetera, it it was pretty prestigious, and you had a lot of benefits come to the track and to the racers, but seemingly. Um, lately, I don't think I've seen any real other benefits other than maybe some national points. Now I'm going to obviously open it up to the floor. What do you all think about the idea of NASCAR not being as relevant in short track racing? I don't think it's needed, honestly. Um, I think what they provide is obviously, as you mentioned, the national points, uh, that's still a pretty prestigious deal. Um, I know a buddy of mine finished uh, first overall in Division Two and Division Three in back-to-back years, uh, and he got a decent little paycheck from it, nice trophy, fire suit, all that. Um, My question to but, you real quick is, did he get the no-expenses-paid trip to North Carolina? He did. <laughs> Yeah, you, if you're the champion of any other division or whatever, you don't get your flight or anything paid for. You just they're like, oh, here's your invitation. Make it to North Carolina on this date. Uh, okay. Yeah, but I, I mean, <laughs> I think the only other thing they really provide 
and, and I'm not 100% sure on this either, but I've heard that they provide insurances uh, for liabilities for the track as well um, in case, obviously, something were to happen. It's a dangerous sport. It does happen. Um, but it, it's, it pales in comparison to what it used to be when R.J. Reynolds and Winston uh, were involved, like you said, back in the 80s and 90s. And e- even when Dodge was involved dodge had a pretty good program going there for a while as well yeah nick what are your thoughts on the idea of nascar maybe losing their foothold in the uh short track realm well i mean in new england it wasn't that long ago they had a pretty good um presence up here because you had all the tracks that were part of the new hampshire short track racing association so that's like four or five tracks there um once riverside park speedway closed seekonk and waterford picked up a nascar sanction um, so at one point you had all the Connecticut ovals under NASCAR sanction. They had a pretty good, uh, foothold, as you would say. Um, it's difficult to say really if it matters. I mean, I think the problem is it's like any partnership that you have in business. What, what are your goals? What are you trying to get out of this? Um, you know, Wheeland formerly sponsored the series. So I'm not sure if Wheeland potentially helped tracks with lights. I mean, there's all these little things that, you're not sure in terms of the uh, the agreement, were there other benefits besides the insurance we're not familiar with? Um, but to your earlier point, I think the big thing with the national championship that we kind of maybe forget is that that always kind of had a little different look to it over time. It used to be when Ted Christopher won his national championship back in 2001, it was all, all the races at one track because you had to declare a home track. And then they eventually changed that from a uh, fight for national and regional championships to state championships. So that allowed someone like Keith Rocco to go in about 10 years ago and dominate SK Modified Racing across all three tracks and win the national championship. And then it's kind of been uh, less of a presence in more recent years than the last few years. I'm not really sure. Um if NASCAR is a necessary part of the landscape, it's just that you look at NASCAR and it's there's always been a different way to do things as far as the short track level goes. So to me, some of these tracks historically were rarely a part of NASCAR. You know, it's only a more recent thing that Seacon rejoined NASCAR or Waterford most of its history wasn't a NASCAR track. And they did okay. They had their own local following. Um, I just try to look at if you are a local track in the sport, are you trying to use it to acquire additional local sponsors because you can market your NASCAR facility? It really just would come down to what are you looking for out of the relationship? Because it's not like you're, uh, you can go back and, and look at some previous programs they had in the eighties or nineties and find an easy way to reconnect to how those things were um, under the Winston branding. And it was a really valid, long-term agreement that everyone seemed to be working really well with. And it's, it's not easy to just point at one thing that says, okay, this is like the key problem, why it's not working anymore, or Thompson might not be continuing with it. So it, I think it's just a part of the larger problems of some of the things that are going on in short track racing. So to me, I'm kind of more interested with NASCAR. Um, if they identify um, some tracks that are leaving, what's their, what's their response going to be? Are they going to come up with, a new way to approach this weekly series now that advanced auto parts has come on board 
Are they going to come up with different ways to um, work with the promoters better? I mean, I'm not sure really what their strategy would be, but I am intrigued to see which direction it goes because it's not as simple as just saying, uh, you know, get out of town uh, as far as um, their presence. I mean, they own NASCAR as a company. I don't think many people realize that like, they own racing electronics. Like they have these other things involved in motorsports that are really big pieces of the puzzle. So I'd like to try and see what them as an industry does uh, to help short track racing long-term. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, you know, if there is one thing that is very positive about NASCAR, it's what you mentioned. It's that you can use their name to attract a lot of sponsorships to the track. Racers can use that to try to attract sponsors to their own cars. And there is a certain level of prestige to say that you've won races at a NASCAR sanctioned facility. Um, and it is pretty nice to get a little plaque in the mail and say, oh, you were in the top 100 or top 50. Or mm -hmm. like Jesse one year finished, I think, second in Division three or the two or whatever it was. Yeah, if it's uh, second Division three. And um, it was very interesting to go to the National uh, Banquet down in North Carolina. And, I mean, there's a – like I said, with the name, there's a certain level of prestige that's just – it's not really um, – it's not equaled by many other – um, sanctioning bodies. Okay, my turn. Um, <laughs> the the um, as a fan, as a fan, uh, the NASCAR banner doesn't really mean too too much to me. As far as uh, the the races are still going to be NASCAR doesn't make the races any better at a, a given facility, and that's what what I would when I want to go pay my dollars uh, to go watch some hard racing then that's what it's going to be. That's what's going to dictate it, not whether it's a NASCAR track or not. Um, that being that being said, um, the Waterford Speedball thrived for many years. Never had a NASCAR sanction until 1985. Before that, they were the um, uh, United Auto Club, United. I think. Yeah, they were under United. For they also didn't have it for a while until 2000, right? Something yeah, like that? And, and yeah, it wasn't, they weren't a NASCAR track very long until after the Aroots had uh, finished uh, their tenure at. Uh, yeah, they were kind of in and not out. Even, not even tenure um, with the facility. Uh, yeah, so. And they were, and they had butts in the chairs. They had, yeah, meat in the seats. That's for sure. And again, Seekonk was arrived. Seekonk wasn't a NASCAR sanctioned track either for a little while, and they still had their own. Relative they had me in the well. seats yeah, as, so. as well. And but again, as a racer, though, it's really, really neat to say that you've beat the best in the country in your given division in your given little, you know, hoop de doo race car and whatnot. It's really, really neat feeling to do that. Uh, that being said, though. NASCAR doesn't really promote the their their promotion level kind of falls like it stops at the wheel of modified tour and that's it other than that they could give a shit about anything else if it's as got far a, as it going in if it's when, got a fender on it they typically uh and it's above the Whalen Modified Tour. They typically, or at least at the same level. I mean, they promote the Modified Tour a little bit here and there. That's that's that's. But other than that, they do not promote. They will not help Air Racetrack be promoted one iota, anything lower than the Whalen Modified Tour. 
with, with uh, as far as the local SK guys winning regional championships, they like a Ted Christopher. They Ted Christopher already had national appeal because he was uh, reaching out in Dave's select truck series and NASCAR did Bush Grand National at that time. So he was already a national level guy anyway. Yeah, a lot of uh, Bush Keith Rocco has won eighteen or something of them. 18, uh, 18 track championships I, in Division I, I 1. I didn't know that. 18 track championships in Division 1. We only knew about it after he broke the record, or yeah. when he was about to break the record. Yeah, no one knows because he's not on, a, not on a national level. That's that's why. Now, along those lines, I have a list of all the NASCAR Weekly Series national champions, and I think it started the program in 1982. Yep. How many of these guys do you think raced for a living after this? Three. I don't know, because I'm looking down the names. I'm seeing Tom Hurst, Mike Alexander, David. Mike Alexander spent time in uh, Cup and... and, uh, He didn't go very far, though, did he? Uh, He had a good run. I think he got hurt. He got hurt. I think he did get hurt, yeah. So there was one. Okay, there's one. Uh, Doug McCown, uh, Joe Kosicki, who uh, I believe Keith Rocco just beat his record, right? Yeah, that name sounds familiar for that reason. Because there's two Kasiskis. There's Joe and Ed. So I just I think it's Joe. Um, Roger Dolan, Robert Powell, Larry Phillips. Larry Phillips is a big time uh, champion on here. He's won like four or five. Um, yeah, he's a monster on the local level, like a like a Bubba Pollard or uh, a Stephen Massey. That's what Larry Phillips is. Yeah, and then there's Barry Beggerly, David Rogers, uh, Dexter Knipp. Uh, Jeff Lecca, I can't pronounce his name. Gary Webb, there's Teddy. Uh, Peter Daniels, Mark McFarland, Greg Persley, Peyton Sellers, Philip Morris, Steve Carlson, Keith Rocco, Lee Pulliam. Are we going to say Anthony Anders was actually a champion, or are we just going to skip over that one? No. Okay. Uh, Matt Bowling, um, Jacob Gady, and then Josh Berry this year. So, um, again, look at that list of names and how many of those guys has NASCAR really kind of promoted, or is that really kind of in their wheelhouse? I mean, I'm just kind of trying to play devil's advocate here. So, cool. yeah, it's, I it's feel like point. there's such a disconnect between the top tiers of NASCAR and our level. There's there's really no in between anymore. Now, you're either up there or you're down here, and when you're down here, you get shit on. Now, obviously, I didn't include the list of, like, touring series champions, like uh, K&N East or West, or whatever they're called now, ARCA East or West. Um, yeah. Uh, modified series, you know, Winston West, uh, whatever they're called now, you know, any of those different series. Because there's a lot of guys who made it out of those series and went to bigger levels of cup. But, again, you got to have some serious connections and money which these weekly guys don't have to get up there and be something. Now, I actually went through a list, and it's kind of interesting. It's like, here's a competitor to NASCAR that has been gone for quite a while. It's the ASA. Now, I went through their list of champions, and I'm like, wow, these are some names that I recognize. Oh, yeah, there's some badasses out in the Midwest. There's Mike Eddy, Mark Martin, Rusty Wallace, Dick Trickle, Butch Miller, Bob Seneker, Johnny Benson, Gary St. Amant. I mean, the list, go- Brian Refner, the list goes on and on. And Alan Kowicki won- never won a championship, but he was in there. <laughs> Jimmy Johnson was the 1998 ASA Rookie of the Year. Yeah. He, came he did up- okay. Yeah. <laughs> he came up through, a- he didn't need NASCAR to come up through. There, you know, he didn't come up through well, ARCA he- Easter, you know. He's any of that. an off-road guy, really. Right. He went through yeah. ASA. 
He didn't go through Winston West. You know, he's he totally came different. up through, Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's I'm just trying to play both sides of the coin here. But right. um you'll notice I skipped over the solders because I hate them. Um <laughs> the real badasses drive for USAC midgets and sprint cars. <laughs> but yeah, what what was that, Phil? I said the solders or the slaughters. I like both. the slaughters. Both. Yeah. <laughs> I show no bias on this show except against them. God, they suck. <laughs> We're going to get sued. <laughs> End of bushes. Fuck them. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I'm interested to see what... Na- I've heard that uh, the NASCAR sanction fee actually was going to increase next year. I think they said 15%. Really? Yeah, and I'm like... Yeah, that's what I heard. If there's one constant that I've seen in NASCAR, it's that prices and costs go up. And from a personal pers- – this is my personal perspective. I'm not saying this at all. I'm saying that the benefits from that – not the basic benefits, but the stuff that they would do for you a little bit extra here and there has gone down. Like I remember first getting a license in I think 2000 when Jesse was racing at Waterford at the Speed Bowl, so I had to get a crew license. When you got your license, you got not only your license, you got not only the rule book, but you got stickers, pins, a bag. You got all sorts of different goodies, and that – was all included in your license fee. You know what you get now? And you pay like 30, 40 bucks more for the same license? A rule book. You get a rule book. Oh, and by <laughs> the way, you don't use the Waterford Speed <laughs> the year before 99, it was 35 bucks for a driver's license. Right. As opposed to back then the next year was 90. Was it 85 or 90? Does that like we're 90. just splitting hairs at that point. Yeah. I mean, shoot. So, yeah, I mean Again, I'm interested to see how NASCAR reacts, like like everybody else said. Raise your prices during a, a slowdown, an economic slowdown. That's going to work. And the problem is, is they don't really even need to raise prices. I mean, I don't. they'd have to come up with a business plan, and I'm not the business plan kind of guy. And I don't think they really have to disclose literally everything to us. But, again, there's got to be a better excuse. But... Again, I'm very interested to see what's going to happen, let's say, five years down the road and see what happens with NASCAR sanctioning. Again, there's so many other series out there. you got the ARCA Midwest Tour. you got the CRA. you got um, uh, whatever else around. Southern Super Series. There it is. Past Tour. Yeah, ACT. you got the um, different modified series. You've got all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Women's Sportsman Series, everything's all over the country. There's so many different tours and series that are going around. Yeah, so I'm I'm very intrigued to see, but not enough sanctioning bodies. Yeah, on a national level. So I'm very intrigued to see what they're going to do there. I I honestly think I don't think short track racing needs NASCAR. I think it's grown to a point now. I mean, since since probably '08 when you know, the market crash and all that. Um, the health of the sport has increased steadily since then, and it's it's in a really good place right now, I think. I mean, th- this week at Citrus County and here in Florida, we had 31 sportsman cards show up for 2500 bucks to win. It's- and those, let's be fair, those sportsman cars in Florida are not the cheapest things in the world. No, I mean... You got I I paid sixty five hundred bucks for my car. I'll have twelve grand in it when I'm done. But there's guys okay. Out they there just with look really expensive. 
Well, this guy's out there with $80,000 cars. But <laughs> it, it comes down to rule packages, too. If you have a good rule package, you can race an $80,000 car against a $20,000 car, and they're both competitive with each other. Oh. Do they run crates in your division? Absolutely. We're all communists. Cute <laughs> it right up. <laughs> oh, really, man. nigga? Oh man. <laughs> so anyway, you know there was two things that we glossed over on the show that we should probably get some opinions on. Uh, we were actually right about the Kyle Larson thing with the Hendrick 5 car. We even we couldn't screw that one up. Um and they uh, apparently they got him on a multi-year deal. They haven't announced any sponsors yet or anything. I don't Nick, you ever have you heard anything deep about that cuz I I'm asking all my sources at this point. I can't say that I have other than the same thing everyone else saw which was he was going to drive for Hendrick and then the question was which car number he was going to drive and now that those aspects are uh official it's kind of playing the waiting game to see what sponsors are going to uh work with hendrick i think that's kind of a lar- an interesting thing because obviously uh there's going to be a lot of media attention next season on his comeback but i think also uh see where hendrick is um they haven't necessarily been uh the powerhouse that they were um for so many years and chase elliott obviously is uh fresh off the win this past weekend but uh you see flashes where that team is getting stronger, and this is a really young lineup in this team. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Maybe this is the the setting up the foundation for them to be uh, a really contending or dominant team under the new rules package that comes in in a couple of years. So just these little changes you don't necessarily uh, make much notice of at the time end up uh, paying dividends later on. So that's maybe the more interesting thing I'm looking at is to see where Hendrick goes the next couple of years with uh, some of these new ideas and people that they're working with. Yeah, Rick used to hire um, veteran guys exclusively, but I think that what he's done now is he's kind of changed course, and he's really moved towards a younger driver but a talented driver that they can mold into veterans and stay essentially on payroll and carry the team for a long period of time. And I think he's really done that. I mean, Kyle Larson's the oldest guy there. I think he's 28. So they're they're building a very impressive program at this point. And we'll just see, yeah, again, let's see five years down the line. Uh, one, th- one other thing we missed because it hadn't happened yet was the literally longest rain delay ever. Um, <laughs> Kyle Busch won the Texas Cup race for his first win all year, and I know Jesse's disappointed. Um that race Boo. was that race was rain delayed for over seventy two hours. It's okay, that race don't matter. Seventy two hours, thirty four minutes, and twenty eight seconds. Mister, keeping track of time over here. <laughs> I just remember seeing it all over Twitter. <laughs> so, I also got to pass along that Keith Rocco is going to get. I think this hasn't happened yet. What the hell's the date today? The second. Okay, good. It hasn't happened yet. Keith Rocco gets his Arca West opportunity, not Arca East. It's going to be Arca West with uh, Venturini Motorsports at uh, Phoenix on November 7th after his New Hampshire Motor Speedway ride with them got canceled uh, earlier in the year because they canceled that event. Those checks are non-refundable. I guess. Non-refundable. So he's got to cash them in at some point. I mean, it's not like he doesn't know what he's doing in a Fender car, you know. 
I know he seems like Mr. Modified, but he's got a lot of. Uh, he's going to be an wins. old fart in that series. He's going to be like. I know what's he in his he's low be 30s. Like, he's yeah, he's going to be <laughs> like a grandpa. 35. Oh, he's thirty-five now. He's the same. He and I are the same age. We- Time marches on, huh? Jesus. Yeah. Now yeah. he's going to be like Adam Sandler in friggin' Billy Madison and stuff. <laughs> that was fun today. Wasn't that fun? That was fun. So, Nick, were you at the Speed Bulls Northeast Street Stock Nationals event on the Halloween? Yes, uh, I was there for their uh, finale, um, the Street Stock Nationals. Okay, so I heard that 18 cars showed up, uh, and the event was won by Christopher Buffone. I can't pronounce that name. I can't pronounce any name, apparently. That's okay. Yes, uh, Buffone. He's, uh, he won that, and he won the race on Friday night up at the Thompson World Series. Oh, cool. Uh, earlier this um, month. I counted at least three Speed Bowl Street Stock regulars that were in the event. Four, if you count Tommy Shea, but he races so part time, it's hard to keep track of them. Yeah, I think um, that's the first time Tommy Shea raced all year. I thought he came out once or well, twice. Well, he just at put Speed the engine Bowl. in the night before. Or no, he did it on the way to the track. On the way to the track with, with yeah. a guy hanging off the trailer. Yeah, in the trailer, Damn. probably. No, he. This is. Skills. We're joking. It's it, because he always does this. Yes. Um, but again, this is. <laughs> I don't. I think the Seacon cars. I'm not counting them as Speed Bowl regulars because they're Seacon cars. Obviously, right. it's a different role package. Yeah. But, um, again, we were complaining about the rules and them kind of excluding the Speed Bowl guys for an event being held at the Speed Bowl, and when you see three cars show up for this event that were Speed Bowl regulars, and I don't think they even finished near the top five. Um, that's kind of sad. I mean, we were complaining about that, like I said, and making the rules so that the regulars aren't competitive at their home track, but I think it showed it. I mean, you got three guys show up for a $2,000 to win race because everybody else stayed home knowing that they weren't going to be competitive. No, I didn't see the results. Who were the three guys that showed up? Was it... I know you said Tommy Shea. Did Sean Monahan show up at all? No, I don't no. think I, I didn't see him there. No, uh, Chicolas was, was one of them. Um, Jesus, I can't really remember now. But uh, I, I think, think Bo Norman was there, but he he ended up having a practice crash. One of the Plemons. One of the Plemons was there. I think it was the younger, the kid Plemons. Aaron. Was, yeah, I think Aaron was in it. Um, yeah, I think Bo crashed. So I th- there was one more. I know I'm forgetting them, but. At the eleventh hour, the uh, the track had announced that you can run the American racer tires. Yeah, what two days or three days before the race or something like that. Yeah, yeah. which well, they, isn't going to help you at all. <laughs> they changed the available tire like seventy-seven times between uh, when they announced the rules and when the race actually happened. Yeah, they had like three different releases saying it's these tires. Nope, nope, you don't can't run these tires. It's a, it's only this tire. No, we, you know what? Forget it. We we screwed up. Now it's these tires, and you know English what? English motherfucker, do you speak it? <laughs> and um, make a set of rules and stick to it. That's what I gotta say. Well, here's the thing. Why don't you just use the Speed Bull Sportsman rules and just let them go for two thousand bucks? Let these give these guys a little, th- you know, throw them a bone, man. Exactly. exactly. You would have had. Tw- you probably would have had like thirty cars show up. <laughs> you would have had Stafford guys, Thompson guys, and uh, I, like I said. I probably wouldn't have showed up, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're poor, but yeah, just don't exclude. Throw him a bone. Come on. Anyway, 
So I might as Is well. Is that your rant for this week? Nah, it's not really a rant. That's just kind of a continuation of come on, you know. So I might as well. We're getting towards the hour here, so I might as well go through uh, national series stuff, and we can talk about whatever drama happened there. Uh, trucks at Martinsville. Grant Enfinger won, made the final four. Now the final four for the championship at Phoenix will be Grant Enfinger, Sheldon Creed, Brett Moffitt, and Zane Smith. Grant Enfinger had the widest truck at Martinsville that has ever existed. This is true. I mean, I can't tell you how many times he should have had a cut left for a tire, but everybody else did. He also had a very strong front bumper. Oh, my God. Shades of Dale Earnhardt right there. I don't say that very often. But Are you calling Dale Earnhardt a blocker? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, he was. <laughs> He's, he channeled his inner Joey Logano and Dale Earnhardt. He yeah. was almost as bad as Larry Barnett. I know. That's, that is bad. I mean, nobody was getting to the bottom underneath him. <laughs> Love you, Larry. Hi, Larry. He's not listening. Nobody cares. Yeah. Well, he's deaf, so he can't listen. He's he he's old. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Jesse's deaf too because they used to run three-inch straight pipes with no mufflers at Thompson. Yeah, and I didn't he, have earplugs. Yeah, he didn't have earplugs a few times. So. <laughs> oh, so the cars up there used to sound like what they do down here now? Oh, they used to sound amazing. Oh my God. What? Oh. What? <laughs> what? What? You can't what? hear? <laughs> can't hear that one. No, yeah, that was like a video game, that truck race, basically. Um, if I can give it a title, if you'd like to hear the title. We'd like to hear the title. It's It would be uh, Call of Poopy. Um, uh, what was it? <laughs> uh, womp womp. Yeah, Call of Poopy. <laughs> black uh, black Plops. I don't know what the hell that That's was, it. but anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will say say this about the truck race. is especially the past two weeks, it has shown that uh, Ben Rhodes is a fucking hack. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. Holy shit. Thank you, Phil. Thank you very much for that. Hey, wait a minute. Who is the kid who he dumped? I haven't seen anybody drive into that many cars since I raced. So, wait a minute. Remember, who was the kid he dumped again? It was the 18 truck. It was Eckes? Christian Eckes. Yeah, Eckes. I was going to say, which one? Uh, No, the one he hooked. But Eckes said, oh, he's going to take him out. He's going to take him out. He had three different chances at the end of the race to touch him, and he never got near no, him. No, but what he did was he, he got into his right rear tire from the outside. It screwed his line enough where that he couldn't go forward and get another spot or another transfer spot. So That's it? Well, he did it cleverly <laughs> is what I'm saying. Christian Eckes, he did it to where he wasn't manipulating the finish right. in he, NASCAR's eyes. I, I thought it was clever. The way he kind of yeah, did. but you don't go out there and promise. So I'm going to ruin his day, and I'm going to take him out, and I'm going to do this and that, well, like Matt Kenseth did. did five years ago. Bullshit! He didn't do nothing. Well, yeah, Matt yeah, Kenseth was Na- a baller. Then NASCAR would just add him to the playoffs, just like they did with Jeff Gordon when Clint Boyer spun himself. Yeah, that was different though. That was eh, whatever. No, it wasn't. That's yeah, bullshit was. too. That was just dumb. All right, so. Xfinity Series at Martinsville. I'm sure I'm glossing over some drama that I missed. Um, Xfinity Series. Harrison Burton won uh, second race in a row. Uh, doesn't do him any good in the championship, though, because he fell out already. Uh, so that sets Chase Briscoe, Austin Sindrick, Justin Allgaier, and Justin Haley to the final four. 
at Phoenix. Uh, I don't. My memory's kind of shot, and I I know that there's moments that I need to talk about, and I'm just drawing a blank. So, Phil, do you remember or anybody anybody at all? It was a nice race. It was actually I, probably not, the, the least drama filled of them all. Was it? I didn't see any laps of the Xfinity or the Cup race because YouTube TV hates me, and I'm not allowed to watch it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Forgot about that. You gotta set your. You gotta get like a VPN or something and set your set your uh, location in a different place. I don't know what you got to do there. Nick, which was the worst race of the three? Well, I didn't see the Xfinity race except for highlights myself. Um, I would say probably the truck race was the worst race just because um, it seemed like it was just the ends justify the means and whatever you got to do to get track position, if it involves three wide, which is not a reasonable maneuver or – cutting somebody's tire or spinning them out. It was like, do whatever you want as long as uh, your truck can still finish the race and you can get your points. That's all that's going to matter. So um, to me, that was that was the most irritating thing to watch uh, compared to the Cup Race Sunday, although I'm sure just by you know viewership, the Cup Race has got more people talking about it after um, Harvick not making it and some of the Gibbs drama and stuff. I will admit, though, now that I, now that I remember – um, yeah, the Xfinity Series race coming down to it was really anticlimactic. They've usually nine times out of ten put on the best race of the weekend all year long for the for all three top NASCAR series. But this race, I'll be honest with you, there was like no late race drama. I think Harrison Burton won by like four or five seconds. They, I mean, they he were just well ran away. Yeah, yeah, they just kind of as opposed to the Truck Series drivers, which many are going to hell for. <laughs> They must confess their sins on Sunday. Yeah, they're going to need to. All right, that moved us on to Sunday, Cup Series race. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. This one had plenty of uh, point drama towards the end. I guess that's what NASCAR wanted, and they definitely got it. Uh, Chase Elliott won. He raced his way into the Final Four. I don't even think he was even in unless he won. He wouldn't have made it on points, no. Uh, so it's him, Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski snuck in, and uh, Denny Hamlin to run for the title. And everybody's probably anybody who hasn't watched racing or lives under a rock because it's like two or three days later when this gets released, probably wondering where's Kevin Harvick. Well, uh, he had a really terrible race. He had zero speed. They had no drive off. I mean. He was mired a lap or two laps down for majority of the race. He didn't have a good Texas either because he smacked the wall. Um, but he, sh- to be fair, he should have gotten out of Texas with plenty of a gap. They just didn't really execute this past race. Something just, I don't know what happened. They just didn't have it. Mm-hmm. That was it. And that stinks. And I know a lot of people are harping on that. It just stinks that the guy with, and I know everybody's focusing on wins and focusing on this and that. The guy had the highest average finish, I'm pretty sure, of anybody else in the field. Oh, by a long way. I'm so sure. wouldn't you think that if you had the highest average finish, if we were going by old school points or cumulative points, if you have the highest average finish, wouldn't you technically be the point leader? Yes. and But this is why you have to question on why we're upset that he's not going to be able to get the championship. Well, bring it down to the foundation. Okay, what what was the reason why this championship format was taking place. It is to assist him 
that's supposed to reward the driver with the most wins and the most playoff points in order to um, to progress and get into the final championship race, the big climactic finish there, Game 7. Well, that system didn't work. It didn't work for that. It didn't work for when Kyle Busch won uh, after missing like over you know half the season, and yeah, it didn't fair. it didn't work when uh, Matt Crafton won the Truck Series championship on points. Um, so the system is, that's supposed to reward uh, wins and stage points and everything didn't do that this time so people are going to feel like the system is a little bit on the broken side as opposed to the old system which rewarded sheer amounts of consistency whether you won the most races in uh, 86 with Dale Earnhardt winning a championship by a long way or in 85 the year before that when uh, Bill Elliott won like 11 races and didn't win the championship and lost that to Daryl Waltrip in like only a handful. I think he won three, didn't he? Yeah, he only won like Something three like, races. I don't remember. It was like two or three. Uh, so, but it, but Bill Elliott wasn't consistent the whole year, and and Earnhardt did not have a single bad race in '86. So those are two, those are some examples of how the systems can be broken. Yeah, that's like I'm saying. I don't look at highest number of wins, and I don't look at I look at highest average finish. If you got the highest average finish, then or is it highest or lowest? <laughs> the uh, be- okay, let's just say this. The best average the finish. The best average finish. If you have the best average finish and you're not racing for a title, then that's definitely screwed up. I just, I've never liked it. I don't like playoff racing. I've never liked it. I don't care if it's been 20 years. I still don't like it. I'm going to continue watching because I like watching racing, but I'm just not going to pay attention to points. From from the oldest school per, uh, uh, perspective, Nick, what do you what do you think about the the Harvick? not making the championship well i mean i've seen some reports that he would have already locked up the championship and it's similar to uh jeff gordon's dominant 1998 season oh my god um so i mean that's one of those things that you're kind of like when you have one of those rare once in a lifetime kind of seasons it's not even really appreciated in the same vein because he ultimately doesn't get the championship um also i want to say harvick's like a seven point six, seven, something in that range for his average finish right now. And Daryl Waltrip in 1985 was ahead of Elliott on average finish at a 7.3 to an 8.7. Um, yeah. So I think I think the problem is this, is everyone makes a comparison based on wins, whether it be Rusty Wallace or whatever driver just had an amazing season on wins. But Mark Martin. It was never shit. the wins that uh, got you the championship. It was always your overall consistency that made it work. Um like I looked at 85 just as an example this morning that you brought that up. And after Darlington, Elliot had like a 200 point lead on Waltrip. And they're like, it's going to take a miracle for him to even catch him. This is essentially over as far as everyone's concerned. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. And uh, he gave it up uh, because the remaining eight races, he ended up winning. Um, I think two races Waltrip did to Elliot's one. Elliot had. I think three consecutive top fives, but all the other finishes were like 31st, 20th, 18th. Like somebody went through the stats on it. And basically the amount of points that uh, whenever Elliott won versus what Waltrip did in the same race is the same amount. Whatever that points gained was, that's the amount of points that Waltrip made back on him. And if you count two additional finishes outside the top 15, it's like giving up 400 points to him. So it wasn't even close. Um, 
But the problem is, like, I, I've always felt the winner always gets the headlines. And it's easy to remember, oh, my gosh, the great season they had. Um, like, I think Jeff Bodine in 1994 won a bunch of races. He did. But he, he had a ton of DNFs and crashes. So it's easy to, like, look back and you only remember, like, certain highlights of it. And you kind of overlook how inconsistent, for lack of a better word, their season ended up being. So that's kind of my only issue with playoff format is when you have a bad race, it really penalizes you versus the whole season where if I've got a 130 point lead like Harvick would have under the um, under the old system, non-playoffs, uh, he's already got the title going to Phoenix and it's, it's basically over. So the only trouble is like when you have a bad race really matters in this system and it, it does make it a lot similar to other sports where your regular season champion doesn't necessarily get to the Super Bowl or win the World Series. So that's really – you have to kind of reset your expectations. So it, where people are just shocked, oh, my gosh, how did Harvick not make it with this incredible season? The system's deliberately designed to make it so you have to execute, you have to have good finishes in these three race stretches until you get to the finale. And frankly, except for winning Bristol and second at Kansas, he's had – finishes outside the top 10 since then so based on the system he's not really performing when he should be so it's just kind of the product of the way it's set up and it really just comes down to philosophically do you want a full season champion or do you want a playoff set up and everyone's going to have their own opinion on which one they feel is correct brent was telling me about is something it's the other day actually and 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 what were you saying about it something about like the right races yeah, basically with this type of a playoff format, I feel like all you really have to do is just win the correct races and just have a really shit season otherwise, and you can be fine to win a championship. Like like some of them don't even matter. As long as you get like like in one section of the races, as long as you're in, it don't matter. You like can... if, you, if in the regular season you win like one or two races and you're basically in the playoffs as it is, and then in the playoffs you just win or place well in the correct races – you know, you could win four races all year. That's a good number anyway. But you could you could DNF basically the whole damn season, but win the correct races and be the champion. It's just not conducive to like. It's just it just doesn't seem like an intelligent way of picking a champion to me. I just don't. I, I've never really thought that. Phil, what do you think? I see. I see both sides of it. Um, every other sport. Or, or almost every other sport. I don't know if there's any sports that don't use this format anymore, but um, most every other sport uses the kind of tournament style uh, elimination playoffs into a champion. But for me, I'm kind of a traditionalist, and, and I grew up watching racing where you Started the Daytona 500 or the first race of the year or whatever, you know, if you're in NASCAR or local short tracks or whatever, mm-hmm. you start at your first race and you focus on consistency throughout the year. And I have a hard time arguing against what they currently do because it does follow what most other sports do. But at the same time, the, the traditionalist and myself, like I said, I'm a Harvick fan. And it kills me to see him not in this because he deserves to have a shot this year. But at the same time, he just hasn't performed, like Nick said. He hasn't he won two races in the round of twelve, I think it was, and that was it. He really hasn't done super well since then. 
he's fallen off a cliff and it's a team sport and it's not just him that matters. It matters what they do with the shop to prepare the cars, what they do at the track, getting the car ready. And I know this year with no practice, it's been different, but I don't know. It's just, it's a double-edged sword, really. I mean, Formula One doesn't do it. If somebody has a really dominating year like Lewis Hamilton is having right now, they're just, well, they celebrate the fact that he had a really dominating year and they go on to next year. That's it. That's all they do. I agree. They still have fans. They have the most fans of any motorsport in the entire damn world. And I can only get away with talking about this because Jesse's in the bathroom. Well, and I mean, you can argue, too, <laughs> that, I don't know, NASCAR, I think when the chase came around, they probably went about it the wrong way. Maybe take the top 16 guys and reset the points and let them run from there rather than and focus on consistency over the last 10 races rather than the whole season. I don't know. There's so many different ways you can look at it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's their sandbox, and we're just playing in it. So, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm going to continue watching. So, Yeah, I mean, I'll watch. I mean, well, I'll watch if I have at cable. But <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's not your fault. It's YouTube sucks, apparently. Phil's on my but, account. Uh, he doesn't get service. I'm a bad landlord. <laughs> <laughs> Raise his rent. Raise the rent. I rent TV and it sucks. <laughs> it's not even my fault. <sighs> All right, so one last note I got here is uh, I believe these are official. Uh, Casey Roderick won the All-American 400 at Nashville Fairgrounds. Um, I know he's not a big winner when it comes to super late models, but that's a really big race for him to win, so... That's really cool to see him get that done. Congrats to those guys. Casey's uh, a really underrated racer. I really like him. Yeah, he's another one of those guys where he's had, you know, some minor chances here and there, but nothing to really, you know, give him that that leg up, that spring that he really needed to get up into the, the upper echelons. But he's he's still doing his own thing, and he's still apparently still succeeding at it. So. Kudos to those guys. So, I, I before before you go on, I do want to give a shout out to Steve Dore and the Wheelman Series uh, down here for what they did this weekend with the High Kick Ninety Nine at Citrus County Speedway. That was probably one of the coolest events that I've ever been a part of. I had spotter duties for the 07 of Scott Garrity. Uh, a number of people listening may know who Scott is. He used to be a Stafford in Waterford regular. Um, we did not have a great night. We were involved in an incident on lap one. Um, and But the race that happened this weekend was a segmented race. It was very similar to how they run the Milk Bowl up in Vermont. Um, it was just a cool event. Um, well put on, well officiated. It was a little bit of a shit show. Um, full moon on Halloween. There was Black Cats. It was red balloons floating around. It was, it was wild, but it, it was a good time and, and it was a really, really good turnout. It was nice to see short track racing alive and well in the south, especially in a place where it struggled for so long down here. All right, I think that we have definitely taken up enough time for this week. <laughs> We're about an hour and fifteen into this. Yeah, but thing. it's all great material. Oh, uh -huh. yeah, I know, but I gotta. Yeah. 
I'm getting tired here, and I'm out of notes. So Roger. come on, three-hour show. No, I've, in here. no, we've done that before. I'm just, <laughs> I could talk forever. I can't edit forever. So I want to thank our guest Nick Tito for coming on. Nick, where can people find you at? Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Yankee Racer, Twitter, etc. Yeah, it feels like uh, all the above. Um, Yankee Racer 2002 um, is the Instagram. Um, account but i don't really use that one as much yankeeracer.com is the uh main website and you can search that on facebook um also have an account on twitter for that so people depending on which way they're more familiar with uh reaching out to us we're you know on youtube facebook twitter instagram so i'm certainly um a fan of talking racing and love uh the sport with a passion and just looking forward to uh seeing what the next season brings and this year certainly been uh a different season than what I thought it was going to be at the start, but I'm glad everything worked out where we were able to get um, part of a season in and uh, looking forward to uh, continuing to support this sport for many years to come. And I also want to thank uh, Phil Jakes for coming back on again. Uh, You can find him on P Jakes racing, P J A C Q U E S racing on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find me on Instagram at Brent Gleason zero one and on Twitter at the same handle. You can find this show on Instagram at Making Laps Podcast, Facebook.com slash Making Laps Podcast. And oh, my son has just joined us to close the show out. Oh, yeah. You can find Jesse under a rock somewhere. You, you in his fuck bunker. off. Leave me alone. <laughs> Where's, hey, the boy is here. Play his sound. What do I do, Lord? Destroy the child. Corrupt them all. <laughs> this is their plan, people. These are demons. Oh, Alex Let's Jones. Let's do that one. All right, Raji. Where we find Raji, how do we close this thing out, bud? Keep today's side Get it into the microphone, boy. Keep today's side down and stay on feet. Thank you for listening. Calm down. Hey, son. Where'd you find this? How much caffeine did you give him? None. It's Halloween Maybe candy. It's oh. all Halloween candy. That one. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll yeah. see you next time. 